This is The Guardian. Hi, Laura Mafiotes here. Today we're bringing you a bonus episode of our series Australia versus the Climate that looks at Australia's track record on climate change over decades. As you can imagine, this episode covers the events of the last few weeks, including the Glasgow Climate Summit, billed as the world's best last chance to solve the climate crisis. If you haven't listened to Australia versus the Climate yet or you just want to know more, you can find episodes one to five on the full story page or at theguardian.com. Okay, enjoy. I'm Graeme Redfern, environment reporter for Guardian Australia, and this is Australia versus the Climate. Over the last five episodes, we've been tracking Australia's shocking behaviour in global climate talks since the 90s. We've been to Kyoto, Copenhagen, Madrid, Paris, and now... Good morning to everybody. Glasgow. It gives me great pleasure to declare open the 26th session of the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations. Our day is older than it used to be, but not yet gone. The day is dimming and still not done. COP26 brought together more than 190 countries with a hope they would finally agree to make urgent cuts to greenhouse gas emissions, to stop burning fossil fuels, and to help the poorest countries deal with the climate crisis. Ancestors of tomorrow, this is an intervention. Anything later than now is too little, too late. Nothing will change without you. Now, after two weeks, we have an outcome. But will Australia agree to it? You know, we should call out the countries. Yes, China can do more, and it's a pity they haven't been here as head of state. Russia, similarly, but also Brazil, Australia. Australia, a wealthy country, is still in fossil fuel mode, not in crisis mode. Well, I think we need to talk about that. This is part six. Australia versus COP26. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Murph, you flew to Glasgow with the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, to cover COP26 for The Guardian. Can you tell us what that first day was like? On day one at the summit, we actually arrived late into the venue because uh, we had sort of run several hours behind. 
Catherine Murphy is Guardian Australia's political editor. There were many, many, many people there, sort of staggering numbers of people. It's a very large venue. There's thousands of people inside. It's a bit disorienting, actually. It felt like we walked at, you know, at least a couple of kilometres you know, <laughs> through different pavilions, um, different uh, displays by various uh, countries. There's a great sort of throng of uh, bureaucrats, of uh, delegations. Uh, at one stage, Leonardo DiCaprio swept through. Uh, so there's this enormous heave and throng. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to COP. There were a number of very vivid contributions, opening national statements at the at the conference. And to Scotland, whose most globally famous fictional son is almost certainly a man called James Bond. Boris Johnson sort of compared uh, the world to being on a doomsday clock. Ticks down remorselessly to a detonation that will end human life as we know it. And we are in roughly the same position, my fellow global leaders, as James Bond today. The head of the United Nations. Please welcome the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. The six years since the Paris Climate Agreement have been the six hottest years on record. You know, spoke in very undiplomatic, stark terms about the nations of the world couldn't continue to kid themselves that we were actually addressing the climate crisis. We face a stark choice. Either we stop it or it stops us. Uh, Joe Biden's speech was very Joe Biden-ish. To state the obvious, we meet with the eyes of history upon us and the profound questions before us. It's simple. Will we act or will we condemn future generations to suffer? But uh, was sort of penitent in the sense that he acknowledged that America had not been a rational actor in global climate conversations during the Trump period and he intended to change that. I know it hasn't been the case and that's why my administration is working overtime to show that our climate commitment is action, not words. One speech that stood out was the one from Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados. And are we really going to leave Scotland without the resolve and the ambition that is sorely needed to save lives and to save our planet? How many more voices and how many more pictures of people must we see on these screens without being able to move? Or are we so blinded and hardened that we can no longer appreciate the cries of humanity? We had this significant announcement in amongst our speeches from Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India. By 2070, India will achieve the target of net zero emissions. These five elixirs will be an unprecedented contribution by India towards climate action. Friends, all of us are aware of the reality that the promises made so far on climate. So we've got all these huge speeches, but then it's time for Scott Morrison to tell the world about the Australian way, the government's long-term plan to get climate pollution to net zero by 2050. Pleasure. Welcome His Excellency, 
Mr. Scott Morrison, Prime Minister of Australia. Well, I think we're a little short of the Gettysburg Address. Your Excellency, you have the floor. Thank you. I suppose the principal point of contrast was the tone. There is cause for optimism as we gather here. The Prime Minister's opening pitch of his speech was that, oh, I know there's all this doom and gloom around, but don't worry. Technology will have the answers to a decarbonised economy, particularly over time. There's an analogy he's very fond of recently about... 18 months ago, the world was staring into the abyss of a one-in-hundred-year pandemic. We've had a pandemic. We didn't know that we could have a, a, a successful vaccine. But here we are, billions vaccinated, and the world is reclaiming what COVID has taken from us. You know, and look, science, technology... It will be our scientists, our technologists... People, staff... Our engineers, our entrepreneurs, our industrialists and our financiers that will actually chart the path to net zero. And it is up to us, as leaders of governments, to back them in. All good, right? And by 2030, our national determined contribution here at Comp26 notes that our emissions in Australia will fall by 35% by 2030, far exceeding our Paris commitment. Even though the whole domestic debate had been around 2050, the vignette he delivered was focused on 2030 and how we were spectacular we were going to be on 2030. And that was an effort, obviously, to meet the expectations of the summit, which was about 2030, never about 2050. But of course, we had nothing material to say. Australia meets and beats our commitments. The problem for the Prime Minister is that his short contribution ended up sounding pretty glib. He didn't have the substance to weight his contribution. It's sort of like you don't have to get into the intricacies of policy mechanisms or targets or all that arcane language of global climate conversations to have some substance and heft to your contribution. If you've got a substantive set of policies that might be equal to meeting the threat, well, (laughs) your words will be treated differently. Your words will be heard differently, measured differently, remembered differently. As it stood, you know, there was there was nothing there. Our researchers, scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, and most importantly, our people are ready. The Australian way is to bet on them, and we think that's a good bet. Thank you. And then he nicked off, and that was that was day one. Thank you, Your Excellency. Day two, uh, Angus Taylor held a a briefing session in the pavilion about the Australian way. There's sort of this kind of strange orbit of fossil fuel executives kind of around the Australian pavilion. There was an exhibit in the pavilion that Santos had contributed that was a carbon capture demonstration prototype. Uh, The billionaire's breezed in and out, Twiggy Forest and uh, the gas executives and other, you know, people that you wouldn't normally see at a COP and that was a bit disorienting too that, you know, here's this sort of parade of fossil fuel executives (laughs) through the Australian pavilion. That was a little different. Yeah, this is something that was commented on a lot at Glasgow, just how many fossil fuel representatives were um, inside the talks. The Fiji Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarama, said that Pacific Island negotiators, they were outnumbered by fossil fuel lobbyists, he reckoned, by 12 to 1. And for many, it was pretty galling that Australia had a gas company, Santos, there promoting a controversial technology, carbon capture and storage, 
front and centre next to its emissions reduction minister, Angus Taylor. Over 500 people with links to the fossil fuel industry have been accredited for the COP26 climate change summit. And the organisation Global Witness claims that there are more representatives from the fossil fuel industries at the conference than from any single country. So Morrison leaves after two days. All all the way through this, he's dealing with this international fallout of being called a liar by French President Emmanuel Macron after Australia dumps the deal to buy submarines. Murph, before you leave Glasgow or on on route back to Australia, does the Prime Minister give the media any summary of how the trip's gone or his hopes for the rest of the COP? That would be usual. That would be traditional. Uh, But I must say, um, moving between the summits, we actually saw very little of the Prime Minister outside of press conferences. And uh, I think part of the reason was that uh, the trip didn't go exactly as had been planned. Uh, the, The Prime Minister was battling a serious international incident for the entire time he was on the trip. Around the world and back again. Scott Morrison's bruising international trip is done, but he's come home with some extra baggage. So, Adam, Murph's in Glasgow. You're reporting from Australia when you're supposed to be asleep, I think. Have you managed to cover a climate conference from the other side of the world? Uh, Well, by not sleeping is the short version. Adam Morton is Guardian Australia's climate and environment editor. Go to bed at 12, get up at 3, check in what's going, maybe go back for a couple of other hours, then get up again and check in. I basically work through the night talking to people on the phone, people on the ground from Australia and other countries that um, I'm lucky enough to know after covering this over a fairly long period. Cops are funny things. When you're inside them, you don't often like have a sense of what's going on around you and, and certainly not what's going on outside the buildings that you're in. But outside is sort of where I want to start with you, Adam, because we did see there was a lot going on on the streets of Glasgow. Yeah, you're right. As we've heard throughout this series, these conferences are kind of like carnivals. There's tens of thousands of people there. And the pandemic reduced access to an extent this time. Civil society complained quite a bit that it felt shut out compared to previous cops, but it didn't stop a huge protest presence outside. On the middle Saturday of the conference, there was a global day of climate justice. Organisers estimated there were about 100,000 people marching through the streets of Glasgow, which is only a city with a population of about 600,000, so it was a really massive presence. Change is not going to come from inside there. That is not leadership. This is leadership. This is what leadership looks like. And Greta Thunberg, the founder of the School Strike for Climate movement, came up with the most memorable lines of the summit when she disparagingly described what was going on inside. We say no more blah, blah, blah. No more exploitation of people and nature and the planet. No more exploitation. No more blah, blah, blah. 
So moving inside into the actual conference, after the leaders have left after the first few days, we get into the negotiation phase. Now, we'll, we'll get to the text of the agreement in a minute, but there were some really important side deals or, or pledges that could have quite a big impact on what countries do on climate. Yeah, there were three big ones. The first was to stop and start reversing deforestation by 2030. More leaders than ever before have now signed up to protect our forests from countries in the north and the south with temperate forests, tropical forests, and including nations like China, Russia, Brazil. Deforestation is basically just the clearing of native forests, which still continues at an extraordinary pace across the planet. It's upwards of a fifth of all emissions. Some of the largest forest estates in the world. They've made a landmark commitment to work together to halt and reverse deforestation and land degradation by 2030. There was another deal with methane, which is a really powerful greenhouse gas, traps a lot more heat than carbon dioxide. It's released during gas and coal extraction and by livestock. The US led that one. Together, we're committing to collectively reduce our methane by 30% by 2030. And I think we could probably go beyond that. And then there was coal. Leaders have been negotiating all year over a deal to phase out coal. And that's kind of the biggest of the three. But the Morrison government wasn't prepared to sign up to any side deal that could be interpreted as it's saying it would cut fossil fuel use. It wouldn't agree to a 30% cut in methane by 2030. It certainly wasn't interested in phasing out coal. We did sign up to the deforestation pledge with a lot of other countries, though. Yeah, and this deforestation pledge, that that was a surprise for some that Australia signed because Australia's regarded as one of the only developed countries to still be a, a hotspot on the planet for land clearing. So this was like, oh, Australia's going to stop deforestation. That's that's great news. That was the initial reaction, certainly from some forest campaigners in Australia, but the Morrison government quickly made it clear that from its perspective, this deal was only aimed at dealing with deforestation in developing countries. So think the Amazon, think of the Congo, and in reality, it didn't have to do anything in Australia at all. So another thing we always see at COPs, there are lots of reports, and some of those reports look at the targets that countries have put forward and then what those targets would do for the climate crisis. Now, they did not paint a very cool picture. There was a report by a group called Climate Action Tracker, which has great expertise in this area, that suggested that based on current targets for 2030, and Glasgow is all about what will countries do over the next decade, that the world was on track for about 2.4 degrees of heating, which is a catastrophe, right? If we hit that level, we are talking um, loss of human life on a significant scale through extreme weather and heat waves and parts of the planet becoming unlivable. Yeah, and it, and, I, and I recall that there's been quite a lot of work on this over the last 12 months where we've seen uh, scientists looking at how once you get over about only two degrees, you can actually start to kickstart, almost like rolling a snowball down a giant mountain. You, you, you start seeing parts of the, of the climate system take on a trajectory that humans can't 
stop. So you start seeing issues with permafrost and other such feedbacks that you can't control. And and those are now being talked about at, at two degrees, not 2.4. And we have to remember Paris was about the phrase well below two degrees C, but obviously trying to get as close to one and a half as possible. So 2.4 is is a, a, a scary world away from that. Yeah, it's terrifying, frankly. So I want to move now to the, the last few days of the conference, look at the process to get to that, that final agreement. Um, now, these are always periods in COPs. They, it generally goes like this. You've got a couple of big documents, um, and these documents are constantly being refined and negotiated over. The countries go into rooms. They talk about what's in the text. They say, oh, I, I don't like that, but I do like that. We'll keep that part in. Let me start by thanking you for continuing to work tirelessly since we last met in this forum yesterday. And then the documents, they go back to the president of the COP, who in this case is Alok Sharma. He's a cabinet minister in the UK, chair of the conference. As you're aware, detailed technical negotiations have continued across a whole range of issues over the past 24 hours. And then we see another version of the text. Uh, Countries talk about that some more. And maybe another 24 hours or so goes on, and then we get another version, and we have this going on for days. Dear delegates, let me start by expressing my heartful thanks once again for your continuing tireless work since we last met in this forum yesterday. There are a few interesting things in the first draft. One was that it it clearly put the emphasis on the need to aim to limiting heating to 1.5 degrees. It really did stress the gap between what was currently being promised and what was needed. And it did come other interesting things that would really be necessary to get to 1.5. One is it introduced the idea that we need to phase out coal and fossil fuel subsidies, which might sound like an obvious thing you need to do if you're going to deal with the climate crisis. But this is new uh, for the United Nations negotiations. There has been no explicit mention of coal or fossil fuel phase out in previous deals, including the Paris Agreement. And it uh, also suggested that all countries should come back with stronger emissions targets for 2030 next year, which was a new timetable, much faster than what the Paris Agreement suggested, which was that countries wouldn't set new targets until 2025. So all this was about trying to increase the urgency of action. That first draft came out last Wednesday. I think there was a general sense at that point that we don't know how this is all going to end. Is it actually going to land on anything meaningful or is it all going to fall over again? Well, it was interesting when those first iterations of the draft text came out and when the first ones come out and the the word coal is in there. And like you say, this is really extremely unusual. I don't ever remember it happening before we have a specific mention of a fossil fuel in a document. And so what seemed to be happening from my perspective, every time there was a new version of this, I could hear around the world the collective downloading of a PDF and everybody going, control F, call, to see if it was still there. That's right. Friends, it is now decision time. And the choices that you are set to make are vitally important. So we get to the final days. Um, The Prime Minister, obviously, Scott Morrison, was only there for the first few days. Uh, But where is Australia at this point? Where is uh, Angus Taylor? Is he there busying the negotiating rooms in those sort of final important days? Uh, He is not. Angus Taylor flew out of Glasgow on the Friday of the first week of the two-week talks. So we are at that point represented by diplomats. 
and bureaucrats. The Australian delegation is headed by the ambassador for the environment, whose name is Jamie Isbister. And without that ministerial presence, Australia kept a pretty low profile in those final days. In fact, at one stage, Jamie Isbister was reportedly approached by uh, TV cameras to ask about Australia's position, and he said, it's not my job to talk. Is this a good deal for Australia? I'm not doing story I'm not doing with you guys. Why not? Why, why can't you talk to Australia about what's going on here? Is it a good deal for Australia? No, I'm not doing media. What was your job here to do, Jamie? I'm here for negotiations. And how did it go? And that, you know, publicly was very much the position Australia was taking at this point. You were getting the sense, Adam, that uh, while Australia publicly was keeping a low profile, but yet we, we hear very little in those last day, day and a half about what Australia is is doing. What were you hearing, Adam, about what Australia was doing in those sort of final days? Well, as you say, Australia was keeping a pretty low profile um, in those final days, but its position was clear despite its public silence that it wanted changes in the document that was being debated. Particularly, it wanted to get rid of or soften a clause that would commit countries to come back next year with stronger targets to cut emissions by 2030. Australia was accused of hiding behind other countries. Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Russia. Not great company to keep at climate talks, you might think. There were days when Australia said nothing in the plenary at all, which is really quite out of character for a country that's been pretty vocal over the history of climate negotiations. Basically, Australia was opposed to anything that could be interpreted as it having to ramp up action or cut emissions in a way that was in line with the world keeping heating to 1.5 degrees. Meanwhile, we had a report released by climate groups that ranked Australia last among all countries that they assessed for climate policy, 60th out of 60. And campaigners from across the globe awarded Australia the title of the colossal fossil, the country that was doing the most to undermine action due to its embrace of fossil fuels. So things were going well. Coming up, the final agreement. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's get to the final couple of hours. By now, it's after midnight on Sunday in Australia. It's late on Saturday in Glasgow. The final text emerges, and they're all in this in the plenary for the final meeting. What are they arguing over? Now, 
when, when we say arguing, actually compared to some other cops, some other summits, it wasn't that angry in the room. It seemed like it was, you know, reasonably forceful sometimes, obviously, but good-natured interaction. And there was an expectation at this point there would be an agreement on this form of wording. But you had this unusual situation where you have people like John Kerry from the US and Xi Chenhua from China standing side by side with the text in front of them, pointing out lines, discussing it. John Kerry going, okay, I'll be back in a minute or something to that effect, wandering over and whispering in the ear of Alex Sharma, the cop president from Britain, and making a suggestion, them having a chat, agreeing. Kerry walking back to Z and them doing a fist bump where there's an agreement on a change of wording. So no one at this stage knows exactly what they're haggling over, but you, you're watching climate diplomacy, the arcane fine detail of climate diplomacy happen on the floor of the conference in real time. And this dragged on for quite some time before they finally came back for the final session at which there was an expectation that the Glasgow Climate Pact would be agreed. And then there was one last final dramatic intervention. I now invite the COP to adopt the decision entitled Glasgow Climate Pact contained in document FCCC stroke CP stroke the text is before the plenary. The chair, Alok Sharma, is reading out various sections. And of course, as they go on, a little bit like at a wedding where you ask if anyone uh, has got an objection to speak now or forever hold thy peace, we get to this part of the document that talks about uh, a coal phase out. I see India wishes to take the floor. India, uh, you have the floor. At that point, the Indian Environment Minister, Bupendi Yadav, says he wants to speak. Mr. President. Thank you very much. And that his government has a real problem with the wording of the pact that it had not raised publicly before related to coal. If you permit me, I read that. Now, I propose call upon parties to accelerate the development, deployment and dissemination of technologies and adoption of policies to transition towards low emission energy systems, including escalating effort to face down unabated coal power. The wording at that stage said countries would accelerate towards the phase-out of coal power and fossil fuel subsidies. And India now wanted this change to the phase-down of coal power. Could I ask um, whether distinguished delegates, having heard the proposal, is this proposal agreeable to you? It caused a fair bit of anger on the floor of the plenary. Switzerland, I give you the floor. On behalf of the EIG, we would like to express our profound disappointment. It is no secret that the European Union would have wanted to go even further than the initial text on coal. Liechtenstein is deeply disappointed that this COP26 was not held as a fully inclusive and transparent process. Mexico fully aligns with the statement made by Switzerland. On behalf of the Marshall Islands, I wish to read into the record our profound disappointment. Especially because it had been introduced at the last minute. When, if a country wants to st- as big as India wants to stand up and say, well, I need this change, it can actually prevent a deal being done because it's a consensus process. So from one point of view, it was seen as quite bad form that it was being thrown on the table right now where if the countries wanted a deal at all, they would have to sign up to this. The EIG does not want to risk that we leave Glasgow without an outcome. Therefore, we did not oppose this additional last-minute change, weakening the outcome of Glasgow. So, 
Having now expressed uh, my disappointment, I want to reiterate what I said in my earlier intervention. This should not stop us from deciding today on what, even before you've read everything, I have to say is a historic, historic decision under your leadership. Uh, and you can be very proud of that, Mr. President. And Alex Sharma, the president, acknowledged that uh, really and got quite emotional when that position was forced upon the world. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. I think we need to unpack what this means for Australia, Adam, because despite this sort of watered-down phrase, um, phase down, that does still leave an expectation that Australia is going to start winding back its reliance on coal. Um, and, of course, that is includes other countries that buy Australian coal, then that they will be doing the same thing. I think it's important to first note that just a few days before this agreement, there was a report by Ember, which is an energy and climate think tank based in the UK, that found if you look at it on a per capita basis, a per person basis, Australia has the highest greenhouse gas emissions from coal in the world, miles ahead of any other country, nearly twice as high as China's, which obviously on absolute emission scale dwarfs what Australia does. Uh, but your question of what does the deal mean for Australia there's been a lot of focus on this change of wording from phase out to phase down, understandably to some extent because of the drama of that final moment. But I think it largely misses the point. The key word is still there and it's accelerate. It's been interpreted by the global community as an agreement to move away from coal power more rapidly. That said, this is a UN deal and there's often wriggle room introduced in how these things are phrased. So the wording is, it calls upon countries to accelerate efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power. For those who might not want to act, who would prefer to hide behind semantics, it kind of depends on how you define calls upon, which some might say is just asks. And if you're asked to do something, you can say no. Yeah. And the other thing that Australia has apparently agreed to in signing the pact is that it would uh, revisit and strengthen its 2030 emissions targets, and it would do this by next year. Now, uh, keep in mind, Australia's 2030 target is a mile away from the Paris temperature targets. It certainly doesn't get us well below two degrees C. It doesn't get us anywhere. It gets us even further away from one and a half. So it, it feels like when Australia looks at that, I initially read that, I knew that Australia had signed the the Glasgow deal and thought, well, there's progress. We're gonna we are gonna come back with a, a, a more improved target, and we're gonna go to Egypt and COP 27 in 2022 with a with a better target that gets us inches us a little bit closer with some policies to get to those Paris targets that we have also previously agreed to. It should be said here that is also quite reasonably how the international community interprets it. 
But it didn't take long, Adam, for the Australian government to trash this idea of setting a new target. I haven't counted it, but I, it's certainly less than five hours. So the pact was signed in the bit after dawn, Australian time, Sunday morning. And before midday, the Foreign Affairs Minister Maurice Payne and the Emissions Reduction Minister Angus Taylor had put out a press release in which they um, welcomed the result in Glasgow and said Australia's 2030 target was fixed, that's their word, and would not be increased. The government's position instead is that um, it has official projections that its emissions will be between 30 and 35% down in 2030 compared to the baseline year of 2005. That's better than its target, which is a 26 to 28% cut, and that its projections show it's meeting and beating, as the government likes to say, its goal, and it will continue to update its projections, but it will not update its target. Are you ruling out a more ambitious 2030 target for COP27 if you're elected? Well, all that happened at COP26 was uh, all countries um, noted a request to revisit these things. But I've been very clear about what our target is and that we will meet and beat it. A couple of things about this. The request to revisit and strengthen targets is actually strong language in UN terms. Stronger than, for example urging countries to do something, and Australia signed up to that. Secondly, we haven't met or beaten our 2030 target yet. And if we do, which seems likely, most of the cut so far happened before 2013, before the coalition was in power, and most of the future cut is forecast to be due to state government policies and market forces. The federal government itself doesn't have policies to drive significant emissions cuts now. So, right, the ink's not dry on the Glasgow Climate Pact, but Australia is already reneging on one of the headline outcomes, one of the most important outcomes. A point to make here is while India is heavily criticised for wanting the coal phase-out language to be weakened, they do at least do that and engage with the process while the COP is actually on. Now, Australia didn't tell the COP that it wasn't happy with the language around returning with stronger targets next year. They just let the COP think that they were happy with it. That does not do much for Australia's reputation as a trusted participant in these international negotiations, any international negotiations, when we're willing to just go back on a deal like that. So it made these commitments without planning to go ahead with them, which is extraordinary. The government has been clear that it has no intention of taking steps to accelerate the disappearance of coal from Australia's electricity market. It believes that it will phase out. That's pretty obvious. Our coal plants are getting old and ageing and they're going to come to the end of their natural lives and nobody will invest in new coal plants because they're just not financial, they're not bankable. But the government is actually taking steps at the moment to extend the life of coal plants, certainly talking about that and looking into it. And it's saying that it will sell Australia's thermal coal on global markets for as long as it has customers. Earlier on in the series, 
we heard several people talk about how Australia views its economic interests. Uh, I think it was Christine Milne, the former leader of the Greens and a, a global Greens ambassador, said that she believed that the Australian government was a wholly owned subsidiary of the fossil fuel industry and had been since 1989. The idea that Australia's interests are aligned with the interests of the fossil fuel industry, I think, really, uh, really hit home for me when Angus Taylor, the emissions reduction minister, was was asked in the days after Glasgow about the coal phase-down issue, and he went on radio. Angus Taylor is the Minister for Industry and Energy and Emissions Reductions. Angus Taylor, welcome back to Breakfast. G'day, Fran, and can I congratulate the T20 team? What a fantastic, fantastic outcome. Yep, yep. They were underdogs coming in, I think, but anyway, they're champions going out. Um, Minister, no stronger 2030 target, no end to coal. That's after. Uh, and he said, what our customers want, our customers, is, is our coal. Customers want our products. Will the government take any steps at all to phase down coal mining or coal-fired power or only leave it to the market? Well, as our customers change their demand, we'll change our supply with it. We're not going to lecture emerging countries like India. Australia will supply whatever they demand. And it was said in the context of Australia not being a a democratic country that is being smashed by climate change impacts. Angus Taylor was talking about Australia as if we were a company that sold coal to customers. And that sort of blew me away. Our exports will be driven by customer demand. I mean, they always are. That's what good businesses do. It's what good countries do. We support them. Now, it is crucial. It is absolutely crucial that as that demand changes, as our customers look to low emissions technology. Yeah, and the Prime Minister was explicit at a press conference on Monday that Glasgow had not been a death knell for coal as far as he was concerned, despite the agreement to accelerate away from it. For all of those who are working in that industry in Australia, they'll continue to be working in that industry for decades to come uh, because there will be a transition that will occur over a long period of time. And uh, I make no apologies. If that outright rejection of the intent of the pact wasn't enough, we then had the Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, saying the Nationals, part of the government, it has to be said, had not signed up to the Glasgow Pact at all. It's ludicrous, but I guess... Joyce's stick playing the outsider role despite being the second most senior member of the government. It annoys me, PK, that what's the guy's name? Is it Mr. The Chairman Sharma in, uh, in Glasgow? He also mocked Alex Sharma for getting emotional at the end of the conference. And he was with his gavel like, oh, I'm almost crying, I can't do this. Whether you agree with Sharma or not, he had clearly worked tirelessly on getting a global deal. And he was genuinely moved about the anguish of people from low-lying islands that are most at threat from the climate crisis. And Joyce thinks this deserves mockery, apparently. It's bad diplomacy, but it also just lacked basic decency. Let's bring Murph back in because I'm interested to hear both your thoughts. We've got this domestic story going on now here in the aftermath around Australia's rejection of of the targets. Uh, But I wonder how this is going to play out internationally. We have here a global climate pact in which Australia has put its name to and then within hours says it won't do what the international community largely thinks it has signed up to. It's really hard to see, if it behaves this way, how Australia is going to be seen as a good faith actor on the global stage. 
In the wake of Morrison's stoush with Macron in particular, it's another case where the government and Prime Minister have left themselves open to accusations that they can't be trusted. Look, it's a tale of two realities, isn't it? Uh, there's there's an agreed set of language uh, for an international audience that Australia is prepared to sign on to the principal objective of the Glasgow summit. Meanwhile, at home, given that uh, 2030 is uh, sort of like a poison chalice in terms of the internal dynamics of the coalition, we have a message crafted for domestic consumption, which is... Uh, we're not changing the 2030 target. Now, the Prime Minister has been asked to square these circles because obviously, you know, who are you lying to? Are you lying to your global peers or are you lying to Australian voters? So where do you think this leaves everything, Adam? Where Glasgow leaves us is that next year is going to be a really important moment to see how the world responds. We're obviously still miles away from where we need to be on 1.5 degrees But the reality is the gap between what countries and increasingly businesses are promising to do and what's needed has begun to narrow. There's greenwashing within that, but progress has been made. Countries have started to ratchet up their short-term commitments and policies as they promised in Paris. One thing we haven't discussed, but that could be really significant, was a surprise declaration near the end of COP between China and the US, the two biggest emitters, that they would work together in the 2020s to cut emissions. That's going to be one worth watching really closely. And India's pledge to have 50% renewable energy by 2030 is also significant. Glasgow also agreed rules for a global carbon market. There's agreement too to do more on climate finance, to give poorer countries more money, to bring emissions down, and uh, but mostly actually to adapt to the impacts now of climate change. Um, And wealthy countries have not lived up to pledges on that historically, despite those countries being responsible for pretty much the entire problem. But to bring it back to the point of this series, how Australia behaves at these talks, we've heard story after story of an Australian government that's essentially attached to the hip of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, regardless of what might be going on around the world, regardless of the bushfires, the demise of the Great Barrier Reef, the suffering in Australia's own ecosystems and Australia's own people at Glasgow, that gets turned up to 11, with a minister explicitly saying he wants to arrive there to a climate summit to sell more gas and then to stand beside a fossil fuel executive and to then come home and defend the future of fossil fuels. From an Australian perspective, I mean, what do you say? Several long-time insiders and observers at Climate Talks told me during Glasgow that they think Australia's now at its lowest point, the worst it's ever been. And it's really hard to argue with that based on the evidence. It was the only major developed country not to commit to doing more by 2030. And that was despite agreeing in the pact that it's the critical decade in which action is needed. And it's already immediately ruled out changing that. I think all we can say is that it means the political, economic and social pressure is going to continue to rise in 2022. And the story of Australia working against climate change isn't going away. This is Australia versus the climate. I'm your host, Graham Redfern. 
This episode was reported by Adam Morton, Catherine Murphy, and me. This episode was produced by Ellen Lieberter and Joe Koning. Additional production by Ariel Sedario, Beth Atkinson Quinton, and Karishma Lathria. Sound design by Joe Koning. Mixed by Daniel Simo. The executive producers for this episode are Adam Morton and Gabrielle Jackson. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.